Well, good evening. I'm going to... I haven't been coughing much all day, but all morning in Sunday school, as I was trying to talk a lot, I kept getting choked up, and so I'm going to try not to do that this evening. I don't really know how I could stop that, but I hope I don't do that this evening. Um, but we're excited to start this new series on, uh, we're calling it The Good News of God's Word, and we're just going to start with, uh, once we get into it, we're going to start with Genesis and go Genesis one week, and then Exodus the next week, and then Leviticus the next week, and we're going to go book by book. Um, and, and the good news of Genesis, the good news of Exodus, the good news of Leviticus. Um, and if, you, um, if you've been around a church, church for a while and you've been around and kind of pick up on things, uh, you may recognize good news as um, a translation of the word gospel, right? So really we're saying the gospel according to Genesis, the gospel according to Exodus, the good news of, of those books. And so tonight though, we wanna start with an introduction of the whole Bible. And then next week, we're going to do an introduction to just the Old Testament. And then uh, the next week, uh, whatever day that'll be, the 30th of, June, of Jan- January, maybe, uh, whatever that week is, will be the first, uh, the first week in, in, uh, in Genesis. But today, we want to look at the whole Bible and, and, and just talk about the good news of the Bible, okay? And so I wonder what we, what we think about the Bible. The Bible, um, as you may know, is made up of 66 different books. Um, in the Bible, right? 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the, in the New Testament. Um, there's some, some question about how many authors there are, uh, but there's, a, there's around 40, around 40 different authors in the, in the Bible. Of course, we don't know who wrote some of the books in the Bible. We don't know who wrote um, uh, Hebrews, for example, in the New Testament. Um, and there's some Old Testament books that are anonymous, and we're not sure 100% who wrote those. Um, and so we, but, but, uh, kind of estimating around 40 different people wrote these 66 books. Um, it was written over a time span of about 1,500 years, right? So from the, big, from, the, 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 from the beginning when the first book was written till the last book was written, that time span is about 1,500 years, 1,500 years. That's a, that's a long time, right? Think about, uh, think about how things have changed from 1980 until today, right? I, I was born in 1980, and things are so much different now than they were when, when I was born, and that's just a 40-year period. Think about how much things changed over a 1,500-year period. And, and so there's, there's lots of um, uh, diversity and things like that in, in, in the Bible that we're going to talk about. Um, the Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written mostly in, uh, in Greek. Um, there is some of the New Testament, um, like, for example, in, uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a letter that Nebuchadnezzar wrote to the, uh, to the um, Israelite people, and he wrote it in Aramaic, and it's in the Bible in Aramaic. And so there's, there's some small sections of the Old Testament like that in Aramaic. And then in the New Testament, there's a, just a few phrases um, that are in Aramaic. Some of the things that Jesus said when he was on the cross, he spoke in Aramaic. Some of the things that um, uh, the, the little girl that, was, um, that, that had died and he raised her from the dead and said, uh, you know, he spoke that in Aramaic and it's in the Bible in, in Aramaic. But most of it is in Hebrew and in Greek. And then, of course, it's been translated into, in, into to many different languages. Um, and, and, and if, you, if you think about the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, um, think about how different it is, right? It's all different topics, lots of different topics mentioned, um, lots of different uh, parts of history that are, that are recounted uh, throughout, the, throughout the Bible. And again, think about that 1,500-year period. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge time span. So things that are being written about in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus are 
are way different than things that are being written about in uh, in First Peter or Colossians, right? Those are people living in, in cities and in, in, uh, in, in Genesis, Exodus are, are people living in the desert, kind of nomads living in the desert. Um, there's a lot of different styles in the Bible, genres in the Bible. There's, there's uh, some history books, there's some poetry books, there's some prophecy books, there's some, uh, some gospels, sort of like biographies. There's some letters that are written. There's some apoc- apoc- uh, apoc- apocalyptic uh, sections in, in, in the Bible, like Revelation and, and, and parts of some of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, so there's lots of different, different genres in the Bible, right? Um, and, and, and so if you look at the whole Bible, and, and there's lots of different lengths, right? You got some books that are really, really long, like, uh, like the prophet of Isaiah that we've been studying in Sunday school. It's really long. We've been studying that book for a long time now, right? Um, there's other books that are really short. Some of the letters in the New Testament are, are pretty short. Some of the minor prophets in the Old Testament are pretty short. And so there's, 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 there's lots of these differences um, that, are, that are in the Bible. As I was thinking about this, I, I looked up and found online a, um, a poll that Lifeway had done. And this was back in 2017, so it's been a few years ago now. Uh, but Lifeway did this, did this poll. Um, and one question they asked, and it, it says among Americans... So I don't think it's specifically to, to believers, to evangelicals, to, uh, to, to Catholics, to e- even just to believers in general. I think it's just to all, any American that would take this poll. So, so believers, unbelievers. But it, but it would ask, how much of the Bible have you personally read? Right? And uh, 11% said that they had read all of it. Uh, 9% said they had read all of it more than once. 12% said almost all of it, whatever that means. Uh, 15% said at least half of it, 13% said only a few sentences, and then 30% said several passages or stories, uh, and then 10% said none of it. So there's, there's this awareness within American culture of, of, of the Bible, right? And, and most people have heard, 30% it says, has, have heard um, some passages or some stories, and then, and then others have, have read more of it, right? Josh preached this morning about David and Goliath. I would, I would uh, venture to guess that most Americans are familiar with that story, right? Maybe not all the details of it, maybe not even know exactly what it's about, but they've heard of David and Goliath, and they know that's a, uh, an, an underdog versus a, um, a, a strong person. Another question they asked in the same poll, they said, which of the following describe the Bible, right? How would you describe the Bible? And again, this is not to believers necessarily, it's just to all, all people, uh, Americans. 52%, over half, said it's a good source of morals, okay? Uh, 38% said a historical account. 37% said it's helpful today. 36% said they think it's true. That means what, 64% think it's not true or aren't sure? Uh, 35% said that it's life-changing. 34% said a story. Um, 14% said they thought it was outdated. 8% said that the Bible is bigoted. 7% said it's harmful. 11% said they're not sure. And then 3% said said none of these. I thought it was interesting that the the biggest percentage group, that 52%, said that it's a good source of of morals, a good source of morals, okay? Then they asked the question to the same group, why have you not read the Bible more? And remember, people said that it is a good source of morals, helpful today, life-changing, true. And they asked, why do you not read it more? And some said, I don't prioritize it, I don't have time. 
Um, I've read enough of it already. I don't agree with what it says. I don't see how it relates to me. I don't read any books at all. Uh, I'm intimidated by the size of it. I don't own a Bible or I prefer other, other spiritual books, right? It was, I, I thought that was really interesting because people said that it was life-changing, that it was true, that it was helpful for today, um, that it's a good source of morals, um, and, and yet they don't, most people don't read it, it said, right? Or at least don't read it very much. And their reasons for not reading it don't match up with what they said about it, right? They said it's life-changing, but then they don't prioritize it. Um, they said it, they think it's true and it's helpful and it's a good source of morals, um, but, uh, but, they, but they don't have time to read it. They don't make time to read it, right? Um, but as I was looking at that and thinking through that and, and, and kind of wondering about that, um, I was thinking, how would we describe the Bible? How would you describe the Bible? Right? If somebody that, uh, that, that you know, someone in your family, uh, somebody that's not a believer, maybe a friend of yours or, or somebody that, uh, that's thinking about starting reading the Bible, and they came and asked you, you know, tell me about the Bible. What it, describe the Bible to me, right? Wonder, wonder what, what words you would use, how you would describe it. Or if someone came and said, explain to me what the Bible's about. I wonder how you would explain what the Bible's about, what, what, you, would, what you would tell them, okay? And I want us to think about that tonight. What is the Bible about, right? Not, not, not what is Genesis about, not what is Matthew about, not what are the Psalms about, but what is the Bible about? taken together, okay? And so as we think about the Bible, it is, it, there is diversity in the Bible, right? There's differences in the Bible. There are 66 different books, and there are 40, uh, about 40 different authors, and it is written in different languages and in, in uh, various topics, and it, and it was written over 1,500 years, a pretty good time frame. But I want us to know and I want us to believe and, and, and to think that, yes, all that's true, but it's also true that the Bible is one book. It's also true that the Bible has, has one author, right? Because those 40 authors are being used by the Holy Spirit. And so it's also true the Bible has, has one author, and it's also true that the Bible has one main overarching topic, okay? And so Genesis is different than Matthew, and Exodus is different than Revelation, and the Psalms are different than the letter to the Ephesians, Right? All, all that really is different. They are really talking about different things and in different ways and, and all that goes along with that. But they're also all part of, they all fit together like a puzzle. They all fit together to tell one big story. Okay? And, and I hesitate to use the word story because I don't want us to think of it as like a fairy tale or like a, like a fiction, like a made-up story. But it really is a story, but it's a, it's a story of, uh, it's a true story, right? It's a story of history. And, and so the Bible's telling this one overarching story, and, and here's what the main topic of the Bible is. The main overarching topic of the Bible is who God is and what he has done and is doing. Who God is and what he has done and is doing, right? So, so who he is and what his plan is. Who he is and what he's accomplishing. What he is, has done in the past and what he is doing now in, in the present. And as we look at this, I want us to, to be able to kind of kind of think about the Bible very very succinctly and 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 and, and in, a, in a summarized kind of way. And so, we can summarize what the whole Bible says in four points. So, if someone asks you, "What is the Bible about?" Describe the Bible to me. Explain what the Bible is about to me. You could do that by just saying four four things and really just four words. Okay. And so, here's what the Bible's about. Here, here's how we here's how we think about the Bible. 
um, and how, how this story of, of who God is and what he's doing progresses, okay? We can think of creation first. That's pretty obvious. I think we probably knew that, right? Creation and then fall and then redemption and then consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, okay? So open up to Genesis chapter one. I, I passed that handout to you and we're gonna use that here in a little bit, but not, not quite yet. Open up with me to Genesis chapter one, and we see this. <coughs> we see this first point here in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, where God, where God creates the world, the very beginning. And, and, and notice this has probably been pointed out before. You probably have heard this before if you've been around church much. But but notice that it begins with God, right? Genesis 1-1 begins with God. There's no explanation of, of who God is, or no explanation of how he got there. He's just there, right? No explanation of that at all. Just God is, is there. And, and there's a sense where, there, you know, as we read through the Bible and, 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 and get more information, God, we do learn about who God is and we do learn that he's eternal and he's, you know, all those kind of things. But in this beginning, it just starts with God is right there. And, and, and God... God doesn't owe us an explanation, right? The Bible not, is not about us or about what we want or about what we think we need. The Bible is God's book, and it's about him and what he has done. And so he, te- he gives it to us the way that he wants to give it to us and the way that he has decided that we need to know it. So it begins, begins with God. God's there in Genesis chapter 1. And 2. And we see, we see creation. God creates all that there is, right? Sometimes you might hear this big fancy word, um, creation ex nihilo, right? Or creatio ex nihilo. That's a big fancy Latin word. Who cares? It means that God created everything out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. There was nothing there before God made it. There there, There was not stuff there that God took and made the world out of, right? There was nothing there. Only God was there, and God created it out of nothing, he spoke it into existence. And if we read that, that passage more carefully, um, he, 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 he does that over six days. And then he gets to the seventh day, and it says that he had finished his work, and so he rested. Okay? So he creates the world in six days. He rests on the, on the seventh day. I want to pick up with something. We're not going to read all this, but um, I think you're probably familiar with it. After each of the days of creation, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, it says that, that God looks at what he's made and it's good, right? God looks at what he's made and it's good. And then he gets to the sixth day and it says God looks at what he's made, says God looks at all that he's made and behold, it is very good. And a lot has been made about that distinction between it being good days one through five and being very good at the end of day six. And sometimes we talk about it being very good on day six because uh, day six is when God made people, right? And, and I think there's some truth to that. I don't think that's kind of pumping us up too much or, or being prideful too much. People, humanity is the, the pinnacle of the creation. We were created in God's image, and we were created for a special purpose different than the rest of the, uh, of, of the creation. Um, and, and yet I think there's something, something else going on, something bigger going on there. Not only does God look at the people he's made in day six and say it's very good, different than the other days, it says he looks at all that he created, and it was very good. And so on day six, what God's looking at, not, he's not just looking at the people, he's looking at all of creation, right? And everything's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. 
the, the, the relationships of all the different parts of creation are functioning exactly the way that God wants it to function, exactly the way that God created it to function, exactly the way that he set it up to function. The people are uh, interacting with each other the way that they're supposed to. And the people interacting with God the way that they're supposed to. And the people interacting with the rest of creation the way that they're supposed to. And the rest of creation's interacting with people and with God. And everything's functioning the way that it's supposed to function. And God looks at this whole entirety of creation that he's made, and he says, behold, it's very good. Okay? It doesn't stay that way, though, right? That's Genesis 1 and 2. We turn to Genesis 3, and we see that that's not how it stays. The serpent comes into the garden in... Genesis chapter 3, and this is what we call the fall, where sin comes into the world, where disobedience comes in, uh, disobedience to God comes in, and this perfect creation that's functioning exactly the way it's supposed to, now in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve disobey, after Eve eats from the, from the tree and gives to Adam and he eats, and they listen to the snake instead of listening to, to God, and they turn, uh, in, they, they turn from God and disobey him, and all, all that goes along with that, the result now is that that whole creation is messed up. That whole creation is fractured, okay? Look at Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at verse, um, verse 14, okay? In verse 14, now this is after God's already found them, walk, found them in the garden, they're hiding from him and all that kind of stuff. Now this is God coming to the, to, to the serpent, the woman, the man, and he's uh, saying, this is what's going to happen now because you disobeyed. This is the punishment or this is the result or the consequences, however you want to think about that, of, of what's happened because of your disobedience. And so to the serpent, he says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel or he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, that's what he says to the serpent. Now to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the, to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. So this is what's happened as a result of the fall, as a result of them disobeying God. Now God comes to them and says, this is what's happened. This is the consequence, this is the result. All that unity that was happening and all that stuff, that how everything was fitting together exactly the way that God, that, that God wanted it to and made it and created for it to, now all of that is broken. Now the people in creation are no longer interacting the way that they're supposed to, right? Now the creation is going uh, to produce thorns and thistles and weeds, and it's going to be hard for them to produce food. <coughs> We're going to come back to this in a minute, but there's going to be this, this enmity or this hostility between the woman and the serpent, right? And that's between her and, and that specific part of creation. And, and so that relationship's messed up. And then the, the, the people's relationship with themselves is messed up. Right? It says that, um, that part, of the, part of the woman's uh, consequences or punishment is that she's going to have more pain and childbearing, but also this relationship between her and, and, and her husband is going to be messed up. It says that your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
And, and so there's, there's something going on there. We don't have a lot of time to get into it, but when it says that your desire shall be for your husband, it doesn't mean like you're gonna, you're gonna be like a good wife that wants to be with your husband and, and that kind of thing. It means that your desire is gonna be for his place. You're gonna try to overtake him and you're gonna be competing with him and you're gonna want to, uh, you're gonna want to take on the role that he has and he's gonna try to rule over you harshly. And so now there's gonna be this, this friction between the man and the woman, the man and, 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 and his wife. And then finally, there's this, this disruption between the people and, and God as well, right? We didn't read this part, but I think we're familiar with it. When, when, when God comes and they're in the garden hiding and he calls out for them and they don't answer because they're afraid, right? It says they're naked and they're afraid. They were never afraid of God before, right? Before they walked together in the cool of the, of, of the day, it says in the garden. They had this intimate relationship with God. And, and so the fall happens. They disobey God. Sin comes into the world. And so all of this is messed up now. So just now in this very first three verses, we've got creation, and now we've got the fall where everything is, is messed up. The, the third part uh, in, in the story of the Bible, the, the third act, you might say, in the, in the story of the Bible is, uh, is redemption. Okay, Look back at chapter 3, verse, verse, verse 15 with me for a second. Now you may have heard this before. If you've been around here very long, you probably have heard someone talk about it. But look at, look at chapter 3, verse 15. This is immediately after the falls happened. This is part of God speaking to the serpent, part of his punishment or consequences to the punishment. And in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity. That's kind of, a, kind of a weird word for us. We don't use that very often, but it means something like hostility or disagreement or... Uh, what's that, Terry? Or you're going to be an enemy. You're going to be enemies. Yeah, you're going to have you're going to have this thing between y'all. There's going to be this hostility between the serpent and the woman, between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and also he says between your offspring and her offspring, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the of the woman. Okay. Now, now what's going on there? What is the offspring of the serpent? Well, if the serpent is Satan which we know from later on in the Bible that, that he is. Um, and, and if Satan, if we think about the offspring of Satan, what is it that Satan produces? He produces evil, right? He produces evil, he produces death, he produces temptation, he leads to sin, all those things that go along with it, right? And all those things that the, that the serpent produces. And so the serpent's offspring is going to, there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman, and also between the serpent's offspring, death, and all those things that go along with it, and the woman's offspring, okay? That's kind of cryptic uh, language. We don't know exactly, if, if that's all we have, if the Bible ended in Genesis chapter 3, we wouldn't really know exactly what's going on there, what he's talking about there. But that's the, that's the beginning of a promise that God made uh, to his people that he's going to redeem them to us. Right? The fall happens, and immediately as part of the fall, part of his consequence, part of his, his punishment for the fall, he's making this promise to the, woman, to the serpent here, but to the, the woman involved in it, to the woman, to the serpent, that there's going to come, oh, I didn't read the last part. The last part says between the, the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring, it says he, the woman's offspring, will bruise the serpent's head and the serpent or the serpent's offspring will bruise the woman's offspring's heel. Okay? So what's the, what's the difference between a heel wound and a, and a head wound? If you get cut in the heel, if you get stabbed in the heel with a sword, if you get hit in the heel with a sledgehammer, you're probably going to survive. It's going to hurt. It's going to be bad. You might have to have your foot amputated, but it's probably not going to kill you, right? Unless it gets infected or something like that. 
But if you get stabbed in the head, or if you get hit in the head with a sledgehammer, that's probably going to be fatal, right? And so he's saying here, the serpent is going to produce offspring. The serpent's going to produce death. The serpent's going to produce these things. And these things are going to be bad, and they're going to cause injuries, and they're going to cause pain, and it's, and, and it's going to be serious stuff. It's going to be bad stuff. But the woman's going to have an offspring, and the woman's offspring is going to crush the offspring of the serpent. The woman's offspring is going to undo what the serpent has done. Even think about what the serpent's done in the garden with all these different relationships that have now been severed and, 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 and messed up. The woman's going to have an offspring, and that offspring is going to put all that back together, fix all that, okay? Which is interesting because now you can get out your, uh, take out your handouts that I gave you. What, what's the very next thing that happens after chapter 3? Look at Genesis chapter 4. The very next thing that happens. So I didn't read the, the last few verses of chapter 3, but uh, there the man, it says he calls his wife Eve. He gives her a name, Eve, because she's going to be the mother of all living. And God made them skins and clothed them with skins, and then he, he kicked them out of the garden. We don't have a lot of time to talk about that, but that's an act of punishment because they're no longer going to get to live in this paradise that God had created for them. It's also an act of mercy, an act of grace on God's part, I think, because uh, there's, there's another tree in the garden that he doesn't want them to eat from now, and that, that is the, the, the tree of life, right? And, and if they were to eat from the tree of life and, and they're fallen, sinful the way they were, then, then that would perpetuate that, right? And so he's kicking them out of the garden. He's put this, this angel with flaming sword there at the gates to, um, to block it. I said we don't have time to talk about that, but here I am talking about it all. Uh, but he, but, but he, he, he did that, right? They're out of the garden. And now look at chapter 4, verse 1. What's the first thing that comes up in chapter 4, verse 1? Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, and she bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, and then again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And, 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 and we're not going to go on with that story. But my point is God made them a promise in chapter 3 verse 15 that the woman's going to have an offspring. There's going to be a seed of the woman, offspring of the woman. And, and somehow that offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of Satan, crush the head of evil, and, and, and put all this back together again. And then the very next thing that happens after they're kicked out of the garden is she has an offspring, right? She begins having offspring. She has Abel. She has Cain. Uh, we, we know the story there. And, and, and so look at, look at this, this uh, outline that I gave you. This is kind of an outline of, of, of the history of the Bible. And so uh, we start there with creation. It's kind of small. <clears throat> we start there with creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and then the fall in Genesis 3, we've gotten there. And then the next big thing that happens in Genesis is chapter 6 and 9 with Noah when God sends the flood, and Noah's there with Abraham in Genesis 12 where God calls Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Follow me. I'm going to lead you to a place. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And then uh, Abraham has a son named Isaac. He has more than one son, <clears throat> but he has a son named Isaac. And then the, uh, the Hebrew people uh, go to Egypt to, to escape the famine. So God keeps them alive through Egypt. And then God uh, gives them Moses to lead them out of Egypt once they get trapped there as slaves. God gives the plagues to prove to uh, Pharaoh who he is and even to prove that to the Israelites, the Hebrew people, that he really is the true God. He leads them through the Red Sea uh, into safety. He gives him the Ten Commandments and he says, I've made myself your God. Now here's how I want you to live. 
Um, and then they disobey, they disobey again, and so now they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then Moses dies, he gives them Joshua to be their next leader, and Joshua leads them into the promised land, and they conquer all the other nations that are there, and they divide it up among the different tribes. And then uh, the people begin to turn away from the Lord whenever Joshua dies, and so God raises up judges to save them and to fight off their enemies when their enemies attack them and to lead them back to, uh, back to the way of uh, uh, following God. And then he gives them the first king, Solomon, or I'm sorry, the first king, Saul. Um, and then Saul turns away from God, so he takes the kingdom away from Saul and gives it to David. And then David is a good king and follows the Lord and leads the people to follow him. And then David dies and his son Solomon becomes king. And then Solomon uh, is, is, is a pretty good king. There's some things going on in his life, but he's a pretty good king for the most part uh, until the end. And then Solomon dies and you got this guy Rehoboam there. And Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Rehoboam becomes the king when Solomon dies. But what happens is Solomon, uh, Rehoboam uh, splits the kingdom in half. And there's some, there's some reasons for that, but there's a rebellion when, when Rehoboam is the king. And so the, the kingdom is split in half. And so in the north, you have most of Israel. Most of the tribes go to the north, and they're still called Israel. And then in the south, you have the, the tribe of Judah and part of the tribe of Benjamin and maybe a little bit of, uh, of others, but, but mainly Judah. And that nation is now called Judah. And so they have different kings and they have different histories and, they, and, and, and the kingdom is split in half now. And they they're kind of have parallel timelines you can see there. And then in 722 BC, the northern kingdom is attacked and, and is conquered by Assyria. And then in 586, the southern kingdom is attacked and conquered by Babylon. Uh, Babylon has conquered Assyria by that point as well. And then the Persians come in in 539 and they become the new power that conquers Babylon. And so Israel is there with, with, um, with, um, in, in captivity with the Persians ruling over them. And they've got to be thinking, well, I'm not going to say that yet. And so, so, so then, then that, that last little short line there is God sending the people back out of Persia, back into the promised land and reestablishing their kingdom. And then there's a 400-year gap between the end of the Old Testament there and the beginning of the New Testament. That's why there's that hole in the timeline. And then in the New Testament, we read about John the Baptist coming, preparing the way of the Lord. God sends Jesus. Jesus uh, is crucified. Jesus is resurrected, comes back to life. <clears throat> and now we're living in that kind of wide space there at the very end between the up arrow when Jesus was resurrected and ascended up into heaven and there's coming a day, we're still waiting, where Jesus is going to come back. Uh, and that's, that's the crown with the arrow coming down, right? That's kind of where we are right now. So what's the point of all this? Well, remember that promise God made that he's going to redeem his people. He's going to send, there's going to be a, an offspring of the woman, right? And so Cain and Abel are born, and, and they've, Adam and Eve, have got to be thinking, well, which one's it going to be, right? And it ends up being neither one of them. But then they have sons, and the line continues. And, and all through this history, these people are being born. God, God, uh, Noah has several sons, but God says, I'm going to use this line, right? God's narrowing the line down. It's going to be a son of Eve, but then Eve has these three sons. It's going to be from one of them. And then Noah's born, and Noah has three sons, right? Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And, and God says, I'm going to use Shem. It's going to come through the line of Shem. And so he's narrowing this, this down, and it's kind of tracing through the family through, through, through these different people. And it goes through Abraham. It goes through Isaac. It goes through, through Jacob. Um, and, and then, and then the, the 12 tribes there, and then, and, and, and then David becomes king, and God promises David, you're going to have a, a king on the throne, a son on the throne forever, reigning as the good king over my people, forever, right? 
And then they get to this part in their history where the kingdom is split in half and they've been conquered by Assyria, they've been conquered by Babylon, they're conquered by the Persians, they're not living in the land anymore, they don't have a king anymore, and they're thinking, God, what's going on? You promised us that you were gonna redeem us, you promised us that you were gonna save us, you promised us that you were gonna undo what happened in the garden, you promised us that David would have a king on the throne forever, one of his sons, and, and, and he doesn't. What's happening? What's going on? And there's a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, we're not gonna read it, but there's a prophecy in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah says, he, he talks about this tree stump, and he says it's the tree stump of Jesse, which is the father of David, and he says there's this dead tree stump that's been cut off, right? All the kings have been cut off, the family tree's been cut off, there are no kings anymore. And God says, out of that dead tree stump, there's gonna come a little green shoot, right? You've probably seen that before. You've probably seen a dead tree stump in a guard and there's a, a new growth coming up out of it, right? And that's what God says. Out of this dead tree stump, the, the kings have been cut off, but there's this little shoot's gonna come up, right? And, and, and we know from reading the New Testament that, that there is a new king that comes from the line of David and he's Jesus. And Jesus is the son of the woman, right? He's the virgin son of, of, of Mary, who is the daughter of great, 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 granddaughter of Eve, right? In that line of Eve, he's the son of the woman. And he does crush the head of the serpent, right? His heel's bruised, the cross is bad. He's, you know, he's killed on a cross. That's not good. But in that, and in his resurrection, he conquers the serpent. He crushes the head of the serpent. Right in in Galatians chapter four, uh, Paul writes this. Because you might think, well, why did God not just redeem the world? You know, back in Acts or back in Genesis three sixteen, He promised it in three fifteen. Why did He do it in three sixteen? Right, but He didn't. He He has he, he used this course of history to make this happen. And in Galatians chapter four, Paul writes this. He says. Uh, Starting in verse one, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from the slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Listen to this, verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, look at that chart of, of, of the history, biblical history, right? When the fullness of time had come, when all the things that, that God had wanted to do had been done, when all the things that God wanted to tell us about himself and prove to us about himself and show us about himself. When the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born under woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God had this plan from way back in Genesis 3.15, even before that really, but we don't want to get into that right now. But God had this plan from way back in Genesis 3.15 where he was going to redeem the world. He was going to crush the head of the serpent and he was going to use the woman's offspring to do it. And when the fullness of time had come, he sent his son, born of a woman, to do that. He sent his son, Jesus, born of a woman, to, to do that. So we can think about, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, so we, got, we got these first three points, right? And then the, the last one's going to be real, real fast, real quick. We got creation. God created the world. It was perfect, made it just like it was supposed to be. The fall, sin came in and, and, and messed that up. Disobedience ruined that. And then we've got God redeeming his world. And he promised in Genesis 3.15 he was going to do it. And then from 3.16 all the way to Revelation is the history, the story of him doing it. 
right? And then the final process, the, the final step in, in God's plan, we call consummation, right? Consummation just means fulfillment or completion, right? Think about it that way, completion. God is gonna complete his purposes and establish his kingdom on earth for eternity. Listen uh, quickly to, to Revelation chapter 21. Uh, he says in Revelation 21, uh, starting in verse one, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, listen to this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What does that sound like? That's not a good question because you have no idea what I want you to say. But I'll tell you what it sounds like. To me, that sounds like the garden, right? Sounds like the garden. Sounds like the garden of Eden. Sounds like what was going on in Genesis 1 and 2. It says he's going to be there with his people, right? He's going to be there with them. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That sounds to me like walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden, right? He, he says in, uh, in chapter 22, Revelation 22, it says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. It's the tree that was in the garden that they were removed from so they couldn't go back and eat it. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is what's coming, right? This is what's coming. It's kind of like, I don't, I, I've heard this about history before, where during the Civil War and during other wars back, uh, you know, before communication was that great, the, the war had ended, right? The, the General Lee had, had, uh, had, had um, had surrendered, right, and, the, and the, the Civil War was over. But there was still fighting going on. There was still skirmishes happening because people were spread out so far that they hadn't gotten the word yet that the war was over, right? Well, the war with Satan is over. Satan's head has been crushed on the cross and in the resurrection. And, and yet these skirmishes are still happening until everything's fully consummated, fully completed, and it's, it's, it's brought here to us on earth. But that day's coming, right? So really quickly, what does this mean? It means that the Bible is one unified book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? So we can think about the Bible as Genesis 1 and 2 is creation, uh, and then chapter 3 is the fall. <coughs> and then we can think of chapter 3, verse 15, as this promise God's made of him going to redeem his creation, redeem his people and redeem his creation. And then we can think about the whole rest of the Bible as the story, the history uh, the unfolding of God keeping that promise that he made back in Genesis 3.15.
and, and he's doing it, and he's, and he's going to do it. He's going to bring it to fulfillment. It also means the Bible is about God and what God is doing. It's not, a, not about us, right? We're, we're in that. We're in that story. We're in the Bible. Uh, the Bible relates to us. It applies to us in different ways and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but the Bible is, is about God and about his plan and about what he is doing on the earth. The third thing it means is that, that when we read the Bible, one of the things we need to be thinking about as we're trying to understand the Bible, we need to be thinking about where are we in the Bible, right? Where are we in the Bible? Where, where are we in this, in this plan? Where are we in the unfolding of this plan? When we read the prophets, we need to know that the prophets are still before Jesus, right? And, and, and so they're still making these promises and they're still looking and longing and waiting. When are you going to keep the promise? When are you going to do what you said? And, 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 and they're in that part of the story. When we get to Jesus, when we get to the New Testament, when we get to the letters, we know that that's already happened, right? And we, need to, we need to be aware of where we are in the story, where we are in the, in, in the history. And then finally, we need to know that, that just as God has, has been working to keep his promise, he will bring his promise to completion. He will finish it. He will finish it, okay? He will do it. I'm, I'm gonna close, uh, I'm not gonna pray tonight, I'm gonna close just by reading a couple of passages from Revelation chapter 22, and, and we'll be done. Revelation 22 says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.